am Stephen Drew from the Architecture Social, and I am here on a very, very hot evening recording the podcast, but it's fine. I will persevere with the heat because actually I'm here with an old friend and an old colleague, and we've just had a, a fantastic hour chat before the podcast. So I'm super excited. I've got the bell ready. I can't wait. So I am joined here by the one and only, the fantastic Scott McTavish. Scott, how are you today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm, um, I'm, I enjoyed our chat together. It was good to see your your handsome face and uh, chew the fat on what you know what we've been doing <laughs> and how it's been going and putting the world to rights. So yeah, no, I feel I feel good. It's hot here as well. I'm in New Jersey and it's um, yeah, super hot. Well, that's right. So even if there's if there's slight lag in this uh, recording, the listeners just bear with us. But this is an international uh, international podcast. So Scott, it's amazing that you're in the states right now. But we met in the UK. So we met during recruitment. But before that, I think it's important to say that we both studied architecture, and you've wrote one or two fantastic articles reflecting on your whole career as well and we can talk about those articles in a bit but for our listeners here do you want to tell everyone about how you got into architecture yeah definitely um so i grew up in north wales um my dad had his own demolition company so i'd go onto sites with him reluctantly sometimes and he would like be knocking churches down. He would be like exploding chimneys. And yeah, he would, um, you know, basically destroy everything. And I just remember thinking, you know what? I'm going to build them up. I want to I wanna build up the buildings. And um, so maybe it was a bit of retaliation against my dad. I don't know. I did also think about doing fashion, but then um, I thought, oh no, they'll find out I'm gay if I do that. It's kind of like, so I thought architecture was like a good, compromise kind of, <laughs> kind of butch kind of masculine and still um doing design and then i went to manchester uni which i think you went to manchester as well didn't you yes that's correct we're both manchester alumni absolutely yeah yeah and then i went to the bartlett which was it was insane um and it was just you know, back then it was it was because obviously education was free, so it was like seven years of just really enjoyable, sort of almost decadent. Um, you know, learning about design, learning about art, and yeah, it was great. And I had all these high expectations about becoming an architect. And then uh, once I qualified in two thousand and one, um, I started to feel a little bit of disappointment. Not straight away, but it gradually uh, kind of like dawned on me that I, I was an okay designer. I wasn't like amazing. There were some people that were just incredible. Um, but for me, it was always a little bit of a struggle. Um, but then I got a job with Shepard Robson, who mm. I thought were amazing. They did, you know, they really like looked after you. And I was there for five years. I was, I was managing a team. Mm. And then one day I just thought, I can't do this anymore. This is not for me. And, um, I went into recruitment. I sat down with the recruiter and I said, I want to do what you do. Um, and then, yeah. And I loved that. That was amazing. Like you get to wow. meet, meet all these amazing architects and speak with the clients, you know, the, you know, the top, the top tier clients. And it was, it was awesome. And I, I guess you must've felt the same as well. Like, I don't know how long you were an architect for. Yeah, it's a good question, Scott. I was actually a part two architectural assistant and I was at the crossroads, um, truth be told, where I was thinking, right, I'm going to have to gear up now to do my part three. But in my heart of hearts, a bit like what you said, I was just like, it, uh, while I loved architecture, I love people and there's so much good things going on, I was not the person who was passionate about technical details. It just wasn't of interest to me. And then the idea of doing part three and learning the compliance and fundamentally, it should be something that you are, you know, aspiring to do because you're passionate about it. And for me, it just didn't feel right. I felt like I felt a bit apprehensive about it. And so at the time, I was friends with a chap called Chris Rosetto, who was actually a BIM manager at EPR, which Bespoke placed. So our old company, for anyone listening, so Bespoke Careers. 
And he was like, you're a chatty guy. Why don't you do recruitment? And I was thinking, yeah, do you know what? That sounds great. You know, I was like, I'm going to do it. And so, so, um, yeah, I went for the interviews and, and made that decision. And of course, some people along the way, Scott, I would talk to people and they were like, are you bloody insane? Are you going to, well, I can swear because it's my podcast, I'll put an explicit thing. They're like, are you fucking serious? You're going to throw away your part one and part two and do sales? And I was like, yeah, I totally want to do it. I'm totally doing it. I'm totally going. And then I joined and you were there because you were setting up the New York office in the London office. I joined the absolute total. I loved bespoke, but what I would say a whirlwind of energy, right? It was total energy. It was everything was going. And I remember it was like I joined and it was like, jump straight in, get on the phones and let's go. So it was a complete culture shock. Um, and I think it's one of those things that until you do it, you don't really know how well you're going to do it. But luckily, I'm still here today. But that's why I went into it. Um, now, there's probably a lot of years before me and you met because we're at different points in our careers. I've got a lot more to learn. So I need to pick your brain sometime. I should, you know, maybe I should do this as part of this interview. I should secretly ask some smart questions. But uh, well, think, tell me I about think, how you cr- got into recruitment, Scott. Was it a similar thing? Um, well, it was just basically because I, I felt like I'd fucked up my career choice. I remember at 14, I was either going to be a doctor, a lawyer, <laughs> or an architect. I was like, really? precocious I was quite smart so I thought right I've got a choice I can do pretty much anything um and I remember at 14 looking at being a lawyer a doctor and an architect and um Mm. a lawyer sounded really Mm. boring um a doctor I didn't really like blood and obviously the architect thing did sort of tie in with my dad I really loved lego um and I remember writing to the RIBA and looking at the um, starting salaries. And and when you're like 15, I can't remember, I think it was like £13,000. And that felt like a lot of money to me back then. Um, so there was something really nice about having, oh my having a real focus when you're 14. You're like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going st- to do these A-levels. Um, and it sounded cool as well. Like people are like, oh, what are you, you going to study? Architecture, I'm going to be an architect. And I think maybe partly I, I liked the idea of being an architect, but the reality was completely different. And and people have different skills. Like I said before, I wasn't like a natural designer. I, I learned how to design well, but it didn't just kind of flow like a lot, like it does with a lot of people. A lot of people can just get a pen and they're mm. there and they're sketching. And for me, I was always like, I was always sort of fairly anxious about getting it right. And there were so many solutions to one problem. And it was like, well, why is my solution the the, the right one? So I kind of got pushed into project management whilst I was an architect. And then you're dealing with the, the M&E, the structural engineer, you're dealing with the client, you're dealing with the contractor, you're dealing with, you're like, it's a shit show. You're just having to like manage all these people. Um, and it was just it just felt like almost chaotic and too much bureaucracy. Like these these huge um, kind of building failures that we've had recently. So you've got the Grenfell Tower and then you've got the Miami condo collapse. And it just doesn't make sense because if you think about fire safety in the UK, we're not allowed plug sockets in, the, in our bathrooms. You've got those, I don't know whether you still have those pull cords where you're not allowed a switch, but at the same time, you can have flammable cladding yeah. on a building and all of the kind of the processes and the bureaucracy and the, 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 all that shit. And it just feels like it's bullshit now. It's like, well, how did that, how did that happen? So I kind of got a sense that it was, there are so many, I don't know, it, it, even now I still get confused by it. There must, you know, I get design and build where you've got the contractor who's kind of in control of everything, but then the design quality is reduced and, it just feels it just feels weird, and then you've got all the responsibility, but none of the power as an architect. And you know, frankly, for twenty seven k a year, I was like, nah, this is not for me. And, and like people, a lot of my friends went into recruitment in the nineties, and they were making shitloads of money. And I just thought, well, I don't want to like waste my architecture degree. Why don't I do architectural recruitment? And 
and I loved it and I still do I still do I mean I'm not working yeah. at the moment but I just think it's you know I think because I had such a kind of um, struggle with my own career as well to help other people who are in this, a similar situation was a really a really kind of like it felt like the right yeah. thing to do because some people are meant to be architects you can t- you can you know that they're they're cut out for it but it's it's not for everybody you feel it yeah no you you're right i think that's really interesting and look um i i agree well actually while you're saying that so at acra larry we're doing a cpd yeah this thursday and the new laws of flammable and stuff and you're right you've really got to be into that so i'll tell you a quick little funny story and you'll laugh so I kind of have two frame of mind. So I like to be really open about the recruitment process because behind the scenes, it's far from straightforward. There's a lot of things that go on. And so on one hand, you know, I've never was ashamed of saying I do recruitment. And I really think that like the value of the recruitment consultant is rolled down to who they are and how they go about things. Because in recruitment, I think that unfortunately you have people that maybe aren't doing it the best way. Then you also have people who are doing it the best way possible and are representing people's interests. But like the other day, right? So I posted, someone posted, uh, you know, something on LinkedIn about recruitment consultants. And, and then I re- replied saying, look, it's not always that easy. You know, if you ever get a bad recruiter, call them out. But, you know, the same time should value some good ones. And this guy on my post, Scott, right, you'll laugh about this. He went, Steve, what are you on about? Google, okay. Google recruitment consultants are like scumbags or something. And then I replied to the guy and I was like, so-and-so, do you realize I did recruitment for seven years? And then he was like, ah, ah, but you're okay. But not everyone in recruitment is. So I do think that there is this mixed perception of the industry. Well, I'd love to know what your thoughts are, having seen, like myself, both sides of the coin. You've been the architect and you've you had the highs and lows of recruitment, and we know what it's like. But in your opinion, how do you feel about it and that story that I was talking about? I'd love to know your thoughts. Good question. So the, my biggest my biggest hurdle sort of thing was was to tell my parents that after seven years of study, and working and 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 sort of thinking I was doing my dream job, and then just just telling them like, you know what, I'm not I'm not going to be an architect anymore. I'm going to do recruitment. And I remember my mum freaking out, like going, "We spent all that money on your education, blah blah." And I'm like, "Look, I'm pretty set on it. I want to I want to do something different." Um, and I remember I can specifically see myself. I was having a bath. And I was thinking about, because I was in Manchester at the time, and I thought, if I have to do recruitment, I'm going to have to move to London, and that's fine. Um, I'd bought a flat in Manchester, so it was there was a logistics to, like, change career. But I just remember thinking, there is something really, like, honest and raw about recruitment, because it's like, you make a placement, you make money. There's no subterfuge. It's like, it's quite, it's actually really honest. And if you make... A lot of placements, you make good money. I mean, obviously, the fees can be like that. They're, they're not not everybody knows the fees, but you make. So I felt that there was a real kind of honesty in it that, you know, yeah, I'm doing recruitment and I want to make money. I've got, you know, I've got to make a living. Whereas with architecture, there was there was always like a weird like, oh, if you work late, this building is going to get published and like, yeah, work for free. And it was like, really? I mean, OK, so what? It gets published. So I always thought that there was a real kind of honesty in it. And I know that a lot of recruit, you know, recruiters have a really, some of them have a bad name and I get it that they're they're sharks. A lot of them flick some shit and hope it sticks and it works. But I also compared it to like an estate agent, like estate agents don't have the best reputation, but you know, if you're buying a house, it's just as important as like getting into a career and you've got great estate agents and you've got, some really poor ones. So I just I just appreciated like the honesty to it. And there's a lot of recruitment companies I wouldn't touch with a barge pole, but the the architects for architecture one, like you know, like originally I was gonna to go to Adram and then I went to Bespoke. And I think a lot of clients and candidates, when they're speaking to an architect that's been through it, they 
A, they're relieved, and B, they get it. And you build up a reputation, and that's worth its weight in gold. And, you know, like I said before, if you really yeah. like helping people, if you've been through that trauma yourself, it pays off. And I remember working for, like, you know, Zaha Hadid when they were looking for people for the Olympics and Future Systems and Fosters and all these, like, amazing architecture firms. And I was I was getting such a buzz from it, you know, dealing with these these partners and people that were all the, the ones that, you know, wanted the best people. And, you know, there's people that I placed 10, 15 years ago that are still in the same job. And that, to me, is, you know, it's gold. It's been, like amazing and it's and it's interesting coming to new york and doing it here as well there's they're a little bit cynical at first but then once you've proved yourself and you do you know you are finding good people for good companies and you're matching it i mean everybody's happy so it was the best it was the best kind of yeah the best thing i could have ever done you know I, you know the the soul searching i had when i thought oh my god I've, i really fucked up here i don't want to be an architect but i actually love being in the architecture bubble I love being around architects. These are people that literally want to change the world for a better place. And I, I can't think of another, mm. like, so I'm still in the profession. I like to think I'm at the really early stage of designing a building, you know, like pre-stage one where you're getting your team together. Um, I mean, it's still work. It still has its bad days, but yep. there's definitely, um, there's, I still get a buzz from it. Yeah, still you know, everyone's happy and you get cards, you get yeah. flowers and, you know, and it's a growing industry as well. So I think we're always going to need recruiters. Yeah. Well, you'll enjoy that. My father's um, description of a recruiter is a necessary evil. Okay. I don't quite agree with how far my father says that, but I think that anyone that thinks that recruiters are going away, remember there's always been the talks of, uh-oh, LinkedIn's coming. Uh-oh, the new job board. And we were talking about kind of the job board function that I'm going to be launching on the architecture social. But you'll always need a recruiter. And I think it's naive to think differently. But like yourself, I think that the, one of the analogies, I think like with a state, any job where you can influence people and it's an important part of the process, I think it's like an element to it, like the force, Scott, you know, where you've got, you've got recruiters who use the good force or they go to the dark side. And so like where I think like the dark side is for me is that convincing people who don't really want the job to go for the job. And I've seen that happen because if someone's so good at persuading, that happens. Yeah, yeah. But what I always see happen after that is that no matter how persuasive the person is, though, Scott, then once the person goes to the job, that dissipates and they realize I don't want to fucking be here. Right. And all that shit that that person told me was utterly rubbish. And so what I, I think like, and, and you tell me your thoughts on this because you've done more years in recruitment, but my logic about it is trying to really understand what the person is looking for. And sometimes you have to challenge people on what they want and, you know, and really test like, is it really you want to go for a design practice or, are you looking for somewhere where you want a work-life balance or whatever it is? But then once you understand what that person is looking for, then you can really help them with the process. And then it's actually easier at the last stage because you're what you're doing is you're just trying to help them on their journey. So when I started realizing that, then while you make less money up front as a recruiter because you're not just whacking people in, um, you have a low dropout rate, and then you know, the, the the massive trade-off I think as well is that what you might be making less money as than the shonky recruiters you put it out there, which they unfortunately are a few. But you really do over time, people trust you, and and that makes the job easier. But I also think like with the internet and everything, it, it it's like a an architectural practice which is not treating their staff. That develops a reputation, and I do think that recruitment consultants, which uh, maybe are do not have people's best agendas, slowly people find out. So I think like it doesn't make sense to do. I mean, what is your ideology of how to go about recruitment the right way? Um, good question. Well, it kind of comes 
it comes down to like reputation, doesn't it? Whether it's a company or whether it's the recruiter or, or even the candidate for, to an extent. Like if if you like you yeah. said before, if you're just kind of shoving people into a job and persuading them and using all the right kind of words, your reputation's not going to last very long. Um, and then you've got the reputation of a company. People, you know, people talk. Architects hang out with other architects. Good, hang, good architects hang out with other good architects. Yeah. So there's almost like an organic um, energy to it. Um, and as long as your intentions are good and you're trying to do the best for the client, the best for the candidate, and you know, the, you know, generally just do a good job, that tends to become like your reputation. So um, I've always had a – there's a lot of younger people yeah. now, and I feel like they have strategies at work, and then they're like, oh, if I'm nice to them and if I'm good to them and da-da-da-da-da. And to me, that looks exhausting. My strategy has always been like go to work, work hard, be nice to people, everybody, and it'll kind of work out and the money follows. So um, – and I've always said this, I always used to say it to Lindsay, I'm like, it's not rocket science, you know, we're just like matching people. There's a there's a danger that you don't want to overthink it. But I just think as long as you you've got your um honesty with with everybody, you'll it'll be fine. It should be you know, I don't I don't think the LinkedIn stuff and all that, you know, these places where you you've got to look at the design of things and that's a really personal thing. And I've had candidates where they really want to work for the best design practices. And rather than say, well, I probably would say, you know, it's long hours, but I'd say something like, you know, it's not just a job, it's a lifestyle, because it kind of is. And they want all that. And there's people out there yeah. who love yeah. working for like the Heatherwicks or the Grimshaws yeah. and, you know, um, but then yeah. you've got people that might have just had kids and they're like, you know what, I just want to go somewhere that does average architecture I can leave at five thirty. I get a good salary, and I'm happy. And there's a there's a lot of you know uh, clients out there that do that as well. So I think it's kind of you've got to really understand people. And I like people like you. I like meeting people. I like working out what they you know what their passions are, what they want to do. And but everybody's different. And um, I think back in two thousand and four when I started, it was a slightly different. Um, it was a different world, you know, like the, the European Union was big and there was all these different like nationalities, I guess. And that was kind of fun because you'd get like Italian architects that were just so happy to be working in the UK. Um, but yeah, the, the world's changing. And but, yeah. you know, ultimately people are people are the same, aren't they? They want to they want to go to work. They want to feel like they're contributing and architecture's kind of made for that. You know, you are, like I said before, you're literally wanting to change the world. So um yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting yeah. it's an interesting time we live in, and and, and now that well, I'm in America, it's not that different. People they get paid more here, and they're a little bit more like hung up on titles. But other than that, people are people. <laughs> I'm interested to yeah. ask you a question. When, well, when you, that's well when, said. When, that's when really... you changed to um, recruitment, what did your parents say? Was that was it like? Did you have to give them a hard sell, or were they like do what same you want? Same thing. Ah. Oh, right. I'll tell you the truth. So uh, it was polarized. So my mum, and mum, she is fantastic. So disclaimer, mum, if you're listening, do love you. So my mum was exactly the reaction that your parents used to. Oh, my God. Well, why, why didn't you just do this before? You spent like five years and she was, but she was kind of like my mum, where my mum's attitude was that she would never tell me what to do. So I've got respect in that. Like, but I would kind of get the like, you know, the, you know, like the, I don't really understand it. I don't really. So I would get that from my mum. She was like, I don't know what you're doing, but whatever. But my dad actually was amazing because my dad, right, he was a tool maker, right? And my dad hated being a tool maker. He hated, he hated it, right? And so when I told him, he was okay with it because he said, and he went, you know what? I was a toolmaker for four years and I fucking hated it. And so he was at this machine and my dad say like he would chain smoke. He doesn't smoke anymore. So now dad, you listen, well done. Probably, you don't smoke anymore. But at the time my dad he would he, he would yeah. He, but he would chain smoke because he was so bored and he would hate doing this. And so in the end, my dad took a little bit of a 
job where he still works in the industry, but like us, he's a social butterfly. And so he's still in the car industry, but he went wrong, which was managing people, project coordination and organizing some events. But because of that transition, Michael just didn't get it. Um, but my dad bizarrely did. So I kind of had both. But luckily, my dad hated being a tool maker. Um, I don't know if he thought recruitment was the right thing. But I do tend to find that what I think, Scott, is that everyone thinks you're crazy until you do it and you prove them wrong or that you're successful. And then as the name. All right, we are back. We are international. We are dealt with technical difficulties, but we're ready to go again, Scott, aren't we? So can you, can you hear me loud and clear? I can hear you. I think New Jersey's probably pretty busy round about. No, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're taking all the bandwidth. Your ne- your neighbors are going to hate you. So what yes. I was saying, um, or where we where we were talking is that. So I did a live stream today with your old pal Jason Boyle. So he was on the live stream, and we were talking oh, about truth and honesty. And so I've often done many clangers in my career. So I am far from perfect. I make mistakes all the time. And I thought I would share with you one of my embarrassing recruitment stories in the interest of being honest and transparent. So, and I'm, I can talk about okay. this openly because I did not make this mistake at Bespoke Careers. It was my own company. So the worst mistake that I ever did in recruitment um, wasn't technically me, but I owned the company. So I will take full responsibility for it. We sent the wrong person to the interview. So the guy, so there was an architectural client, Scott, and they were interviewing a BIM coordinator. And there were two BIM coordinators on our system called Chris something or other. And we rang up the wrong Chris and we sent the wrong Chris to the interview who agreed to go to the interview. And when Chris got there, he had his interview and the client rang me up and they went, that was the wrong Chris. And I was like, Oh no. And they were like, yeah, but we really like him. So we'll let you off. Send the other Chris. And then they met the other Chris and really liked him. So they ended up hiring both Chris's, but that was my oh, worst one. Amazing. I sent the, <laughs> yeah, but that was an amazing result, but come on. Right. They was like, yeah. so we sent the wrong guy, the wrong guy to the interview, <laughs> but strange things happened. I when oh, I what? rang him up after, I was Absolutely. like, I was like, but, but when I rang him up, Scott, I was like, uh, but when I talked to you about the interview, it was just out of the blue. We hadn't spoken for two months after. And he was like, I don't know. I just thought you were inviting <laughs> me. I was just like, why didn't he tell? But uh, did you, have you ever, have you ever had any funny stories? It doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be bad or anything. I'm, I'm well, sure you've got I, one you or know, two I've stories over the years. I, I'm not being big headed, but in terms of recruitment, it was pretty seamless. I was, I was, there was never anything like that. Ooh. Everything seemed to go well. I might have said, oh, I, know, right. I remember, Lin- I remember, I remember Lindsay telling me once when she, when she started Bespoke, she sent a KPF candidate to KPF who already worked at KPF. So that was, that was always quite funny. I don't know whether you heard that story. If she's listening now, no, I'm really wow. sorry, but I think that's the only one that, yeah, I mean, it was early days, but I have a story when I was, so in fact, Jason Jason Boyle might know this because we both worked at Shepherd Robson in Manchester when, when the new office had just opened and I was given the task to kind of design the office. So I was like, oh, this is great. I was quite young and naive then. I, I now realize that designing the office space is a poison chalice. But I had this vision where yeah. all these files would be perfectly put into place, like, you know, normal A4 files all kind of lined up, like, yeah. you know, like a nice library. And, um, yeah, but I yeah. basically got the dimensions wrong. So none of the A4 files would fit in vertically. They all had to be stacked up horizontally. So every day I oh went into the God. office, there would be like these messy files. And like the partner laughed and I was like, yeah, you weren't really cut out to be an architect, are you? But I, I wanted it to be perfect. I wanted that the A4 file to be like maybe a f- five millimeters gap. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I don't think um, I don't think it's like that anymore. But that that was that was that was shame. Every day you could come in and see like these messy 
files like why are they like that oh yeah scott designed it so yeah i guess scott um, mctavish's files shame yeah not not cut up to be an architect i mean i was more like big on the concept but you know the details i could leave to someone else but yeah that was um i mean it was kind of funny i suppose but yeah there might be I'll, others, but I well, pushed look, them to the back I'll, of my head. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, you've you've blocked them out. Time has healed I've blo- them. I've I blocked mean, them out. I've got one or two. Yeah, yeah. I've I've got I've got one or two, Scott. Where like it's less and less these days. But I used to when I was especially younger, and it was more to do with like making mistakes at social gatherings where occasionally I'd have a shower and then scream out like, "Oh God, why did I do that?" You know. But I get that less and less. The one embarrassing one that i do have an architecture and uh i do often bring up as a little joke because i do think sometimes jokes can disarm situations uh so there's a true story on when i was going and when i was a part two and so we had a big all-nighter at epr which was really rare but i happened to be on the one team or the one project scott because there's always in every office that one project right that's got that reputation you know, and it was like, oh, you're on right. that RAM project. Good luck. Yeah. You know, and I was like, yeah. what do you mean? It looks great. <laughs> and they were like, oh, yeah, I was on that for nine months and don't, I'm not going back. And so anyways, I went on to that project. And at the time, I, like, I think that my director was quite frustrated with me because I was not the ideal part two to have because it was an under-resourced project and I was interested in clocking off at six o'clock because I, I wasn't passionate about a long-term career in architecture because I was getting more aware that I wanted to leave. So I wasn't great because it was, and it was a difficult project. The budget wasn't there. And so it was very limited resources. And you had me being like, nope, I've got plans, got to go. So at the time, there was a lot of friction between me and that director. But I look back and I think that, you know, uh, hopefully with more mature eyes that, oh gosh, I was, I, at the time I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm being victimized. No, no, that's a bit far, but I felt like, um, I've got the raw deal, you know, I was like, oh my God, all the other part twos here, but I'm being, uh, working, I've got to basically work on this project, which is ridiculous, but really they kind of let me go and it was fine. And where I'm going with this is there was one late nighter. All right. And they brought in other people from the teams to help because you know it was like crisis zone and anyway so i was doing this late nighter and i'm not someone scott that i couldn't do all the long hours like in architecture it would kill me mate it would just like it would kill me i was the guy that i couldn't do one late, late nighters because i was dying on the printers anyway so it's like 11 12 o'clock at night and we were doing area schedules and i was in excel and then I had to like add them all up and do all this stuff. And my brain had gone and I couldn't do it. And I kind of tried to flag that I should not be doing this because I was basically drunk from tiredness. Yeah. And yeah, in the morning right. we sent the whole areas off with a model and I lost 1 million pounds worth of square meters because I was tired. <laughs> and I had to tell all the consultants that I had to reissue the drawings and everything and i felt so embarrassed you know i was like but i kind of shit does happen when you're tired though so i'm like on one hand now i'm like oh whatever but at the time i felt really embarrassed so well it's, I always, it sounds like you sometimes did the right I thing tell- you fit you fessed up quickly and you let everyone know i mean that's all you can do isn't it like be honest yeah yeah, well, that's what, what it was a long winded story. But for anyone out there, sorry, I lost that million on that project. Minerva, Minerva, <laughs> I don't think Minerva will be hiring me anymore, Scott. But you've got to, you've got to, you've got to hold your hand up and ma- and make mistakes. So let's. So exactly. we'll probably Otherwise, like gonna, now. You're I not think gonna gr- you're not going to grow if you don't make mistakes. Making mistakes means you're growing, isn't it? That's the that's the the main thing. I agree. So. Let's have a bit of fun with this as well. We'll mix up the formula. So there's one or two things that you mentioned before the podcast, one or two topics I would love to talk about. But first, I think it's only fair that you get to throw a curveball at me or a question. Is there anything you'd love to ask me on air live, which will go out about the social or whatever or my life? What's your favorite building? 
What's your favorite building? I know that's a really oh. banal question, but oh, okay. what is your favorite, your favorite building? <laughs> oh, you got why? me. Oh my You've God. You've got to have one. Okay. I do. I have a few. Um, okay. So on paper, which is completely hypocritical, my the answer that I would usually say in like a dinner party would be the Lloyd's building because I love that kind of old school Richard Rogers yeah, inside house. That's nice. But I've never been yeah. there. So so I've never been there. So that's a bit hypocritical. Um in terms of placemaking. It's only down the road. What do you mean absolutely... not being there? It's only down the road. It's literally down the road. Yeah, okay. I've I've seen <laughs> it I've seen it from the outside, but I think you should go into it if you're saying it's oh, okay, a favorite right, building. Right, so I've really got sure. Yes. I've got to sort my stuff out. Yeah. I'm calling myself out. I've not been in it. So that's right. kind of okay. like my, okay, maybe, maybe that's like my favorite lore, you know, my archie lore, you know, like the, everyone has the, your favorite architect when you're like studying in your part one, right. like, are you Cabuzio or Frank yeah. Gehry? Probably that yeah. building, yeah. but um, buildings are places that I enjoy because I live in Lewisham, which is okay. So there's no like, architecture that stands out there but i absolutely places i love so as a few okay so i'm gonna bend the question a bit because i tend to enjoy thinking about places more so i have really fond memories of level lane because we worked there i love it to me that feels like proper london you know hatton garden level lane really really cool i absolutely love that and it's like a hidden pub down the street so i really have like fond like like architecture romantic notions about that absolutely love greenwich as well so if i get married i always say like i'd like to do it in the greenwich observatory because i think that's cool nice. you know and like greenwich is cool um and where else i'll tell you the other one the other one i got a memory of places is camden okay so when i was a part one fresh welsh babe out of the woods yeah i rocked up to london and I went, to, I lived in Camden and you can imagine, right? I hadn't touched anything apart from alcohol or whatever. And I rocked up to Camden. It was like absolutely Amy Winehouse world. Do you know what I mean? It was just like <laughs> doing your part one late night as Red Bull, you know, a bit of alcohol, a bit of whatever. And, um, you know, you, you now are matured and all that, but you know, in uni, everyone like good thing that we were like, um, you know, we're doing a podcast, but, you know, everyone does a little bit of whatever in uni and the chew is out of it. And I've got really fond memories because because Camden was kind of a cool place. So let me flip it around to you. Favorite buildings and favorite places, Scott. You tell me what your favorites are. Um, I've just got this image of you as this little, you know, this little Welsh village boy from the valleys just kind of coming into the big city and it all being like... I mean, it's kind of a bit yeah, like that in for me in Manchester in the nineties, but 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 in Manchester and it was kind of um, yeah. yeah, I loved it. But best years of my life. Um, but yeah, my uh, my favourite building, I think, is it won the Sterling Prize in two thousand and thirteen, and it was Astley Castle. It was that uh, it was like a ruin, but they they'd um, converted it into a, like a, a hotel thing, and it was just beautiful because it had this mm-hmm. combination of old and new and I don't know whether you remember it but it was like a real mm. it wasn't like a shiny chromey steely sort of building it was just this um almost like a celebration of history um and that is probably one of my favorite buildings I'm a big fan of uh, Frank Lloyd Wright since I moved to America right I've been like a bit of a groupie mm. I've gone to like all the Taliesin I've gone to Falling oh, Water, you? which is He's... amazing. Oh my god, uh... it is absolutely amazing. Yeah, wow, absolutely amazing. Um, and it, and recently I've been going to Mexico a lot. So from in terms of places, I'm a big fan of of Mexico because it's like a palimpsest. It's almost like the more layers you you kind of uh, peel off, the more is revealed, and there's so much history and there's so much kind of to see, like with the Aztecs and all the ruins and it's it's a really complicated nation um and i never i never really kind of thought about mexico i think when you're in europe it's it's so far away and it's a bit of a hassle to get to but now now that i'm here on this side of the world i've really enjoyed going to mexico and and i'm off to peru in a couple of weeks as well so um 
yeah, I've, I, I'm still making like places, but um, Manchester in the 90s were, to me was just like, you know, there was there was such a great music scene. There was like the Hacienda. There was this mm-hmm. burgeoning gay scene, and you didn't realize it at the time. But when looking back now, it was like it was like a thing. It was almost like Studio Fifty Four might have been. But um, and, and and you probably felt it as well when you were in Manchester, even though it was a bit later. But in like the mid, so I went to Manchester in '92, and I just remember being so like it. Like it, it almost feels like well, that was when my life properly started and i i made some amazing friends who i'm still friends with. yeah it was just like it was incredible yeah absolutely yeah amazing. i i do love manchester did you, did, 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 i think like manchester- yeah, did you feel that in manchester when you were there yeah 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 i did scott i would say i'm sorry because it was cutting out a bit there but i totally love manchester and what i would say is um i love and it's quite it was quite maybe it was look super accepting people throughout right and i know there's like the the north versus the south thing which is kind of there but it's kind of not there like you know if you're a londoner they'll still accept you but being welsh was brilliant because everyone up north bloody loved me you know what i mean like ah oh, yeah you're welsh well yeah yeah, yeah. of course because you know i'm yeah, not yeah, i'm yeah, not yeah. i'm not a londoner like yeah not south london so i was totally totally in and yeah like you're saying like Everything there is super cool. I mean, I didn't have the Hacienda, but you've got Canal Street and, you know, you have Dean's Gear Street or Dean's Gate or whatever it was. You know, that was when at the end of the night when it was just cheap drinks and stuff. But it was really smart people. And like, I think that if I at the time had a chance to work in architecture in Manchester, I probably would have because while I like London and now London's my forever home, I really, really loved Manchester. It has so much to offer. And the uni was really good. And like I learned more than I did when I was at Westminster for my part one. I know that Westminster's a decent yeah. uni, but my experience was just, it was just better. But all I was going to say, actually, because you touched upon going to Mexico. Now, when I run my business before, uh, you know, because I run a different business with Shape Careers, you know a bit more of the backstory on that. So I always used to make excuses not to travel because I was always inundated with the work and it was a bit bullshit. And looking back, it was a mistake. But actually, on the last two to three years, um, when I moved away from my own business, I went traveling a lot more. And in one year, I went traveling to like five different countries. And then I went to New York, which one of them, and I met you. Yeah, that was fun. You know, back then when the world wasn't the pandemic. Yeah, and so yeah. New York wasn't was a culture shock to me. Yeah. Uh, well, what, no, well, but it, it was and it wasn't. So because, maybe it's because of the pandemic, but it was actually like three years ago now, mate. But what I was going to say is that was it? I um, would love to talk a bit more about, but yeah, yes, totally three years. It was properly 2018, seriously. But before we talk about, or I think like at the start of 2019, but anyways, before we go into it, right, what I think, what I'd love to know about New York, I, have you been to Berlin? Because I love Berlin. It's my favorite, favorite yeah, city yeah, yeah. outside yeah, of London. Of times. Yeah, well, like f- four, four or five times. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Right. Okay. How bloody cool is Berlin? That's like, I went twice in the same year. Um, I mean, it's pretty full on. It can be a little messy, but it's like proper yeah. fun. I mean, what's your thoughts on Berlin? Yeah, you know, I'm not. A, I'm not a huge fan, to be honest. Um, uh, ah. We last time I was there, I, yeah, I stayed at Soho House Berlin, and there was like this big, um, this big architecture. I think it was the World Architecture Festival, and I know ah. a lot of people younger people who love Berlin because it's like really affordable and um but yeah for me I have never been a huge fan of Germany um yeah uh yeah I know they make really good uh, architects who do detailing but um yeah I don't know I I, I, I want to be careful what I say so I'm just going to leave it at that I'm just not that taken by Germany I've got a really <laughs> no good, you just say I've it, got right, a really good friend who like I can talk a lot, but Scott, you're worrying. Yeah, you're just, worrying. Like, you're 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 worrying over nothing. You didn't say anything wrong, right? I mean, it's no, different cities good. and different places are, di- are different for different people. So what I was going to say is, when I met you in New York, right? 
I love New York. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. I got a little bit seducted by the city, but it's super fucking expensive. There's a sense a bit like London where you can, if you, you can do anything you want there. But I, as a Londoner, was like, I'm going to go to New York and it's going to be fine, Scott. It's going to be easy. I'm totally used to it. But when I got there, it's so high pace. It's really um, up in your face city. I felt welcome, but at the same time, I felt unimportant. You know what I mean? It was busy. It was smelly. It was dirty. Yeah. But I kind of like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, tell me. Yeah. It's so. I. Do you get what I mean? I. I loved it. But what? Yeah. I mean. So for look, anyone, New York, yeah, New York is it, it, you, you moved there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, again, I had low expectations with America. I was never like a big fan. Um, so I went in. So two th- two thousand and fifteen, I moved here. And I, like I said, I had low expectations, um, but then I started to make a life for myself and like grow the business. And, you know, you can kind of make anywhere work, really. Um, you just need the right people. Um, but it, it's um, it's grown on me and I do I do like it. But at the end of the day, it's all right. It's not as good as London. I think, you know, I've lived in I've lived in Melbourne. I've oh. lived in Canada. I've lived in. But I, I think London is the best city in the world. It's like it's sophisticated. It's cool. It's um, whereas New York's OK. It's it's fine. It thinks it's like the center of the universe, but no way is it the center of the universe. And it's actually quite provincial. Um, and I met who did I meet? I met this really, really bright guy when I first got here who's a Brit and he was like I was like tell me what tell me tell me new tell me about New York what's it about and he was going he said oh it's it's quite provincial and it is it's like a big village you know like I still pay my rent using a check which I find absurd and they they're really even though it's like the financial capital of the world they're they're banking like using a check to to pay for rent is weird I think um and yeah. it's the I, I, and another thing there was um a really smart lady who used who designed the whole like virgin upper class brand and she was like super smart and she came over to um lead the the virgin cruise the virgin voyages uh brand as well and and we got together and she said yeah it's like living in the 90s here isn't it and it really like reassured me that i was like it's just a little bit backward um, and I don't know how many Americans listen to your podcast, and I'm really sorry, but it, it kind of is a little bit backward when you compare it to London and other places in Europe. Um, and I think the older the America, the older smart Americans kind of know that uh, it's got amazing military. There's a lot of money here, but it's just not that sophisticated. Um, and Americans, you know, there's yeah, I, I better be careful. What I, I've got some really great American friends now, and I. Like I said, it's grown on me, and I want to be here for a while. And I've kind of, I've, I've fallen in love with the place, but I don't know why. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, it's really it's, interesting. It's a, it's a strange, um, it's, it's it's a fantastic but strange place, and um, it was different for me. So yeah. it was what I mean is it was challenging for me. Whereas I was like a Londoner, thought I knew it all. When I got there, it was overwhelming. It was really nice to see you. And, you know, yeah, it was really good to see the views, you know, like, dumb. yeah, of course. But like, you know, Dumbo is really cool. You've got the bridges and you've got the, and what I think is cool is like, you see all the stuff that is normally in the films and that sounds bizarre, but like the yellow of course, cabs yeah, and, yeah. you know, but all it's that. nothing like sex yeah. in the city. So, it's not, you know, you, it snows. It's like, it's, it's a city of extremes. It's either too hot, it's too cold. People are too fat or too poor. They're either too yeah it's it's just weird it's 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 interesting but it's kind of um it's a city of extremes yeah oh yeah like sex in the city yeah yeah my airbnb had like crackheads outside you know what i mean and that was just like that was like the uh, that was that was because i like i had a really nice airbnb and big brooklyn because it was cheaper but like if i wanted to be on the in the what in the manhattan you know the island bit it was like an astronomical amount you know so but oh, I yeah. didn't mind the crackheads because yeah. I had I had the bars on the thing, so I was totally fine. But that was just like yeah. you know that was the that was the New York experience. 
So, Scott, we're kind of at right. like a really nice point now. We're like we're like fifty minutes in. So I think what would be cool is we mentioned one or two things. So you can what we can see here, I've got your bullet points here. So I think we've got architecture education, which you put down with a question of too long. We kind of covered that one, so we've done a good yes. job, you know? Yeah. We haven't yeah, debated yeah. student student debt. And I think that's going to be a big problem because, and that's one of the reasons yeah. why, because I'm on the, going to, on the Reba Council that I will be on in September. So I'll be representing us, Scott. But I think like 9K of student fees per year is just astronomical for architecture. Yeah. And it's going to, I, uh, I think it's, the poor, the, the poor, sal the poor salary at the end of it as well. It, yeah. It's not a good thing at all. No, I, I, I agree. So I think what we could do now, because I think this is like a good intro into probably some, like your, you, you know, who you are, a little bit about who I am, but also like our like, um, you know, because we kind of cross roads at that junction in recruitment. So I think it's like a nice dissection into how, how we know each other or our professional relationship slash friendship. Um, but that's, and we covered, um, you know, we covered a lot about architecture and failures in architecture as well, you know. So I think maybe we should return to Grenfell Tower and Miami condo um, collapse. But like, what's your rough thoughts on that then? Uh, like um, these big well, look, gaps. Yeah, I mean, like I said a bit before, like it's just, you talked just, about. Yeah, just going through like the whole process of qualifying as an architect and how like the part three is really intense and the bureaucracy and all the checks and balances and, you know, stuff that is, is, is great and is necessary. Um, and like I said before, I don't understand why we can't have plug sockets in bathrooms and we only have light pull switches yet we can have fire, um, you know, uh, non-fire resistant cladding on a, on a, on a building. And then, I mean, there's, there's not so much known about the, uh, the Miami condo collapse, but for, for that to have ha happened nowadays and, and all the reports about how it was unsafe and, I just don't get it. And I know when I was when I was um, when I qualified, there was a, there was a um, there was a role called the planning supervisor, which I think was introduced in 1995. And this was a specific job that was part of the uh, the building team who would be looking at all the health and safety aspects of everything. So it was from down to the design mm. to the running of the building. And it seemed a little bit excessive to me at the time. And I was like, oh, wow, that's a lot. But then, I, you know, it was it was for safety reasons. And then I think from what I know, that was disbanded in like 2004. They got rid of it. And then it was absorbed into something else called the, the CDM regulator. But again, it was about health and safety. And then that got, um, that got sort of pushed to one side in, oh, two, I don't know when it was, 2009, I'd left architecture. And then so all this health and safety responsibility was left to the principal designer or the principal contractor. Um, I guess to save money, but those checks and balances haven't been working. This this is specific to the UK, but if there had been a planning supervisor, then I, then the Grenfell Tower would not have happened. Hopefully, I, you know, I just it's still I don't know. I, I feel like there's just such disbelief that what I went through in terms of training as an architect and all the all the checks and balances that, that didn't work. There's there's obviously massive problems there, and I know they've done reports on it, and I I just don't understand how that could happen. Um, I don't know so much about mm. the US um, kind of codes and code, but I know that they're good engineering, but um, and I know that they're still kind of trying to check what happened, but everything should have been, you know, the geological survey, the structural engineer, the... You know, it just doesn't make sense that in a in a first world country that these things are happening, um, and yeah, and there's, I mean, there's, yeah, I, I'm kind of sort of speechless, like you know, talking about it now. I just don't know how it, how and mm. why it could happen. Um, you know, the UK yeah. and the US, they're I think two of the most sort of powerful na nations. It's just, it's bonkers. It makes no sense. Yeah, 
what I would say, Scott, because currently working in-house, is that um, the amount of CPDs and the reaction to Grenfell, so you're right, I think it's a good question on how it could happen. But I do think what's interesting is there's a massive uh, microscope on it, you know, since. And, and what I would say is that it's been interesting. So already being, so I've only been here two months, but the amount of stuff that goes into talking about fire protection um, has been, is, you know, it's good, but all that should, I mean, the big question is why wasn't that in place at the start? However, I do think that I'm probably, this, I'm not the best podcast for us to do that on because I've not been in the industry for a while. So when it comes to like recruitment and sending the wrong people to interviews, I'm your man. But maybe what we right. can do is yeah. we can get a panel and we can, we can debate that. Because I think it'd be a really interesting topic to go through. So I think for, we, there's one last thing before I think we summarize and where we can, you know, we can, we can talk about where people can find you and we can always do another one after this. However, Love Island, Scott, we've got to get you new TV. So the circle, okay, we've got the American circle. That. That's such a contrast, isn't the, it? That's right. <laughs> so we're going yeah, from but the we got the UK the and the... Yeah, but it's, but it's, you know, it's a downtime. We all have real life, don't we? So the circle, let me tell you the Absolutely. premise, okay? So I, Go on. So check this out. So we've got the American version and the UK version, and I think you'll appreciate both because you've seen both worlds. Um, and so what it is, it is so that it's, um, it's a series of flats in the same building, and, and there's like eight people at the time, and they interact with each other, in these separate flats and they don't see who each other are and they communicate through the TV screens with avatars and texts. But what they can do is they can enter the game as themselves or they can be what's called a catfish, which is basically like a bullshit profile. And the object, right. Right. Uh, the object is to win the game, whether you're a fake or you're the real deal. And so what you have is all this like miniature psychological warfare over like virtual apps using uh, memes, using emojis and people overanalyzing answers and people trying to catch each other out. And it makes really interesting TV. I think it's the best trash TV on TV. So do you, what do you think? Do you fancy checking it out? Oh yeah, no, definitely. I will. I'll definitely check it out. Um, I'm kind of thinking how you have the time to watch it with how busy you are, but yeah, I'm, I'm up for um, watching it, yeah, <laughs> if it's recommended. I, I, I'm a, I mean, yeah. I'm a different generation. I still, get, I still get embarrassed watching that naked attraction where you can see everyone's bits. And I'm like, when did we come to this? <laughs> when did, like, the zeitgeist suddenly? I'm just, like, I'm just, like, so embarrassed. And I'm like, people love it, but I'm like, I don't want to see, like, people's bits on Channel 4. Is it Channel 4? Yeah. I don't know. I guess I'm getting up yeah. with the old-fashioned, but... Oh my god! It, that yeah, to me right. is just—it just really—it really sums up the zeitgeist. I'm like, yeah, get me out of here. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think like everyone's bits in like unflattering lights on TV. It's probably not like the best, um, you know, the best way to have it. And last thing before you go, there was actually another series called The Sex Box where they 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 actually and this got I think it got cancelled. Not surprised where um, it was two people and they would literally talk about before having sex, have sex in the box and come out and say how it was was for them, which is absolutely fucking bizarre. Who is watching that? Wait, so Google that. Where's, it's the, mystery, the, where's, officially where's the mystery the, gone? Where's the mystery gone? That's what I want to know. <laughs> There's no like mystery to it. Like it's just like there, bonkers. There, there, there is no mystery. So look, Scott, we've done well. No. This is international. We've had lag. There's there's a two second lag between this whole conversation. So I would edit it the best that makes I it feel can. authentic. It makes me feel like I'm on a cruise ship or something. <laughs> that makes it feel real. Yeah, <laughs> we're like two loud people shouting at each other across the room. But like we've had a real conversation. It's cut out during the middle. We'll keep that in. But this is the point. The show goes on. I kind of like this raw talk. And so for anyone that wants to ask. Scott, any questions who wants to get in touch, then Scott has done some fantastic articles on Archinect. You can Google Scott McTavish 
and Google Archinect, and you can find out all the bits that we couldn't slot in this show. But on top of that as well, people can get in touch with you on LinkedIn and Scott McTavish, and you are on the Architecture Social as well. So if any students or architects are there, they can reach out as well. So thank you so much, Scott. You've been an absolute gentleman, and I hope we can get you on another show. Uh, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to turn off the podcast in a sec, stay on the show, stay here while we wind up the podcast. But if there's any last words you want to say, feel free to do them now before we close it down. Okay, thank you. Yeah, no, I just wanted to uh, thank you for letting me come on. It's been, um, yeah, it's been a blast. Always good to chat to you, whether we're like on a podcast or not. So yeah, thanks a lot. My pleasure. All right, Scott, I end in the podcast now. Yay, that was fun.